Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. I extend a special welcome to people who are visiting with us this morning. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person, and some would say in every creature. Let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. So this morning is a little bit of an unusual sermon. It's called a question box sermon. Um, because in order to keep myself awake, I have to jump off a cliff every now and then. So um, I would like for you all to think about a question you'd like me to try to answer. This game is not Stump the Minister, although it might be fun, and you're welcome to try, and I have no problem crying uncle, I don't think. Um, Anyway, I look forward to hearing what your questions are. Will you please say with me the words by which we light our chalice? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning, everyone. Our call to worship is adapted from uh, Marnie Harmony. We whose journeys are always beginning, we whose mission always awaits us, we whose visions are always bent on loving, we gather together here, we gather as a community, drawn together out of common need, each toting our own carpet bag of treasures and dreams. We gather together seeking meaning, yearning to understand life in all its dimensions as it challenges and expands, as it burdens, as it consoles and heals. We gather together with questions, the kinds of questions that provoke us to the path of action. We gather with hope, the kind of hope that pulses through uncertainty. We gather with tenderness, we get the kind of tenderness that only can be born out of knowing human capabilities as well as human imperfections. We gather wanting certainty and having none, but we are wakeful to the possibilities as we seek discernment and gentle judgment. We gather then, unbounded but close. We gather thirsting. We gather drawn to our source. Some people might ask if the people in your sanctuary have roots and practices in all the major world religions, including humanism and paganism, how do you hold everything together? What, what do you have in common? What guides your feet? For this congregation, there are many answers, but one of them is our mission statement, which we wrote and wrote on the wall and say every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our reading for centering this morning is from 
the book from the book, The Big Questions, by Lama Surya Das. In partial answer to the big question that he poses, what is happiness and where can it be found? So often we mistake movement for meaning, losing ourselves in habitual distractions to insulate us against gnawing inner feelings, including dissatisfaction, doubt, loneliness, boredom, or anxiety. Much of our unhappiness comes from an unstable heart and mind, from unconscious drives and desires, and from mentally living in the past or in the future. Without appreciating reality as it is, we miss the radiant moment at hand. As long as we're preoccupied with our former traumas and triumphs, or fears and dreams about what might happen down the road, or who said what to whom, it's very difficult to appreciate and cherish the intrinsically joyful gift of life right here, now. In every worship service, we take a moment to be still, to meditate, to breathe together. So breathe deeply down into that part of yourself where you are most who you are. Um, a lot of the questions are about God. So uh, one is um, a fellow church member said there's no official God. And I, th- I think that would make God, oh, God smile. Official God. In uh, <laughs> got a uniform? In the Unitarian Church. I always thought the church officially had a God. Who's, who's the Unitarian God if there is one? So... Um, In its past, the church had the same God that Christianity and Judaism and Islam have. But with the 30s and the advent of uh, Humanist Manifesto, there was a biblical criticism coming out of the German seminaries uh, and universities. There was a a move toward... um, feeling that any kind of a belief in God had just done more damage than good. And so that we could have an ethical uh, society, an ethical heart, without believing in a God. So um, the humanist movement really washed over the Unitarian Church in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And so many Unitarian Universalists don't believe in a God at all, or if we do, we believe in a force of some kind, really a lot like the one in the theology of Star Wars, a kind of a force. Many believe in a higher power of some kind, not necessarily a God with a personality. There's room in Unitarian Universalism for all of these beliefs, including believing in a God with a personality with whom you can have a a personal relationship. Although, when I do an exercise where I draw a continuum on the floor um, and say to a group of Unitarian Universalists, all right, if you believe in a personal God that you can talk to and who talks back to you, 
uh, go on this side of the continuum, and if you believe in nothing at all, nothing other than your own self, um, I had a guy in another congregation I served who would just say, I pray to myself. Um, over there. And most people kind of clumped in the middle. As I said, in the middle is there's something, a mystery, a divinity, a force of some kind, uh, wouldn't think to say what it is. So, and I find myself being kind of a middle-of-the-road Unitarian Universalist on this point. I uh, slide um, between, because another question is, what is your belief in God, Meg? Um, I think this, and this has absolutely no bearing on what you all have to think at all, but I, through my experience and through um, various encounters with transcendence, I feel that and I think that there is, a, there is an energy to strong emotion and that Acts of love and feelings of love, whether it be between uh, human beings or among animals in a pack or uh, kind gestures from a swan to a carp, um, that, those, that those have an energy and that, that from even before humans, loving interactions had energy that stayed in the universe. There's absolutely no scientific basis for this yet. And... Um, I live in hope. But that, that loving energy gathers itself to itself and flows through the universe like a river. And that's what I call God, is the energy of love. And I think, therefore, that we help build God with our loving interactions. And that we can um, sit by the river of God or dive all the way in or just dip our toes in and sometimes let it flow through us. And that is what I would call God. Um, so, Unitarianism does not have an official God. No. Um, the Dalai Lama says after he dies, there won't be a replacement. So, can Tibetan Buddhism continue without him? I have no idea. I'm sure people will make their own Dalai Lama if the official Dalai Lama finders don't find one. Um, what is a simple statement, two sentences, to answer, what is your church all about? I always say Unitarian means one God as opposed to Trinitarian. Universalist means nobody goes to hell. So if I were standing on one foot, I would say, I go to the one God, no hell church. If I could pick what to come back as in my next life, what would it be? I, I don't know. I think I'd like to be a whale and just live deep in the ocean and sing those whale songs. I think that sounds good. And watch out for Japanese whaling ships. How can we embrace the wisdom of more religions and celebrate more religious holidays? Well, if you're talking about we as an individual family then I would say the same thing I say to people who want to write. They go, how can I write? I'm just like, well, you put your butt in the seat and you write. It's kind of simple. Um, but so I would say if you're talking about your family, then just learn about more religions and 
celebrate their holidays. If you're talking about we as a Unitarian Universalist Church, then we're running into problems because we have very ferocious guardians of cultural misappropriation in our denomination. And so we can't just say, all right, we're going to celebrate a Hindu holiday because everybody goes, that's wrong because you, um, you don't have any roots in that, in that faith and you don't have any experience of that faith and maybe you have someone who grew up in that faith and then you can all kind of go watch them celebrate it. Um, so we have, we have obstacles ethically with celebrating lots of different religions holidays. Um, but I am for finding a way to do it with respect and in context um, so that we could do more of that. And if you want to help us do it, please come see me and we'll volunteer you. I like the one called Holi in uh, Hinduism that they celebrated yesterday, I believe, where you take colored powder and everybody throws it on everybody else. That's the only thing I know about it. But everybody acts goofy and um, has fun. It's kind of like our uh, Catholic uh, Mardi Gras. But I think nobody... Uh... Anyway. A recent study found that Austin's one of the most segregated, income-segregated cities. What can our church community do to address this? Yeah, we're income-segregated and we're color-segregated. Um, it is shameful. If you look at a map that has different colored dots for the different ethnicities or races of people, I-35 separates a solid wash of white and Asian people from black and brown people. And um, I find it astonishing. It's astonishing. As someone coming from the outside, coming from South Carolina, where every neighborhood was integrated, and um, and every school and every anyway more than here, which is amazing. And I would love for our church to address it. And we are addressing um, not the income segregation, but we're trying to address anti-racism training by having that here and by each of us who are, identify as white in this congregation, um, trying to learn how to be better allies for those who identify as non-white. If you think about the impact of various religions on their societies and cultures, what are the major positives and negatives you see? I, I think every religion, especially the, the main Abrahamic religions that this person um, named here, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. I think they all have positives in that they say, um, do justice, love peace, um, love one another, love God. And yet, I have to say, looking at the actuality of those religions on their cultures, including Christianity here, um, I would say the religions are very hard on women and girls. And they're very hard on gay people, not even to mention transgender people. And what I think is that if people who claim to, to be part of those religions would actually practice the religion, um, the impact on the culture would be a lot better. 
I think almost no one has practiced the religion that Rabbi Jesus described. And I don't know enough about Islam um, to know whether, I'm sure there are people really practicing Islam. But I think that the bad, the bad effects of religion are really the bad effects of human bad behavior uh, in their cultures. And people use religion to go crazy with, and people use religion to do bad things with. And I have said to you often that self-righteousness is at the root of all bad behavior. And so when you start to feel that flush of being right and righteous, and that you just wish somebody else who's wrong would just shut up, um, the best thing to do is stand very still and keep your mouth shut and, and don't have a weapon in the house. <laughs> Where do we go after we die? Well, the scientific um, answer is we go back into the uh, elements and become part of the earth and the air and the fire uh, and the water again. The Buddha answered his disciple who said, where do we go after we die? He said, where does the fire go when it goes out? So I don't know, and neither do you, and nobody does, where we go after we die. Many people have ideas about it and hopes about it. Um, I wrote a long piece about how I hoped to have my ashes spread under a certain tree in the North Carolina mountains so that I could become part of that particular green that it gets to be in the spring. And I know scientifically that that's possible. There's no leap of faith involved in that. So um, the short answer is nobody knows. <laughs> Time travel does exist. Okay. Uh, who, which four or five others would you invite to your dinner party and why? My dinner party, uh, I would have um, Carl Jung there, and I would try to have um, Jesus there. I think that would be fun. I would love to have the judge, Deborah, who was a judge of the people in the Jewish scriptures. I would love to have her there. She sounds ferocious and fun. And um, I'd like to see my mama again, so I'd like to have her there. She'd probably keep Jung in line. And I would add my Aunt Ruth because she would, she would get Jung drunk and take him into the back room after supper. <laughs> what subject fascinated you most in seminary? Oh, well, that's easy. Church history. I loved church history because it was like reading People magazine, which I also used to love when I knew everybody in it and they didn't all look 12 years old. In church history, you learn things like um, the bishops were told by the emperor that they had to get their theology together because everybody was fighting over theology in the Roman Empire, and it was threatening to tear the empire apart. So the bishops decided to call a big meeting somewhere in Turkey, and a certain cadre of bishops got there a day early and excommunicated all the other bishops who were on their way. So they would have no vote, and they were going to hell. 
and so they pushed through their own agenda. It just sounded very much like growing up in Philadelphia, where I grew up part of the time. Um, the Democratic Party acted just like that. They would um, have a notice in the paper of the Democratic uh, Party meeting at a certain place, and then a certain cadre of Democrats would stick a um, sign on the door of the restaurant where they were supposed to meet and say, instead, we're meeting on the D bus, the 615 bus, and the other Democrats who got there on time for the meeting would see the bus retreating, and they would be running after the bus trying to get to the meeting. Quite entertaining, but not very democratic. Um, with so many issues demanding our attention, how can we determine where to direct our energy? That's a great question. I, I think about uh, my colleagues and our church members who are in Selma this weekend, and I think, I should be there. I have a new knee. I could make it. I could, I could walk. And then I think, no, I can't be there. I'm being represented there. Chris um, Jimerson is there, and uh, our church members are there. And um, woo, trying to determine where you should put your energy is very challenging, and I think that still place is the place where you figure it out. And that it's okay not to be on fire about everything all the time. It's got to be okay. There was a time when Martin Luther King was asked to lead a bus boycott in Montgomery, and he said, I have young children, and I just got here to this church. I cannot do it right now. And then the next time, a couple years later, when they had the bus boycott, then he was ready to do it. There are times when you can do it and times when you can't do it. And there are things that are your issues to be passionate about, and you can't be passionate about everything. It's, it's not possible. And so it's very important, if you are passionate about something, not to berate the people who aren't passionate about it, the people who have other issues. What is your favorite daily practice to keep the spirit of church active when not at church. Well, my daily practice is to come to church. <laughs> I'm here every day. Um, but I know what you mean. Um, what I like to do every day is write, write. And so that's what I do. I write. Uh, morning pages is what Julia Cameron, who talks about writing, she's a writer, and teacher of writers. And so I just write what's in my head, and then when you have it on paper, then you can um, have a relationship with it in a way that you don't have a relationship with it when it stays in your, in your skull running around. So that's me. What brought you to the Unitarian Universalist tradition? Why did you stay? Wow. Um, okay. So I was ordained Presbyterian. I was raised Presbyterian. There were Presbyterian ministers in my family back to 1692 um, on my mother's side. And there were Presbyterian ministers on my father's side back to um, like 1920. So um, I went to Princeton Seminary where I never heard of Unitarian Universalism. They didn't let us read any UU theologians. Um, they didn't let UU students in until quite recently. 
And so I never was exposed. And then what brought me in was a friend of mine who was UU was in a group of women, four women. We had lunch together every Monday. And she came to lunch one day, and she threw some papers down on the table, and she said, here, this is your kind of thing. And it was a women's spirituality retreat. She said, and you shouldn't have to go by yourself the first time, so we're all going with you. And so the Episcopalian, the Methodist, the Unitarian all came with me to this retreat, and um, I loved it, of course, because I have a, a background in my, um, anyway, long story, a background in neo-paganism. And so as the women were dancing wildly around the drums and the fire was leaping up, I was very happy, and my friends <laughs> were leaning against the wall of the center like this. kind of watching me have a good time. And that meant so much to me. I met a lot of UUs and um, started changing my ordination. Uh, the Presbyterians said, no, you can't change your ordination. We don't recognize Unitarian Universalism, saying it like they were holding it like this. We don't recognize that. But I had already talked to the UUs, and they said, sure, we'll help transfer your uh, ordination. Just read this three-page list of books, single-spaced, and... Uh, and then fly to Chicago, and we will examine you after you do a four-minute sermon for the three of us, which I jumped through all the hoops, and now I'm UU, and I stay because I fit here. I'm a middle-of-the-road, very happy Unitarian Universalist. Um, I have complaints about the structure of things, of course. I wouldn't be UU if I didn't. <laughs> what? No complaints? Unheard of. Inconceivable. But uh, so that's why I stay and how I got here, short story. Uh, how do you know you want children and not simply want to recreate the better moments of your own childhood? What are the tough questions you should ask yourself? Well, these are really good questions, y'all. I, I am not sure you ever really know that you want children. Um, I think you have the idea that it would be lovely, but I had a lot of worries. I have two sons. They're in their 20s now. And when I was thinking about having children, I thought, number one, what if they don't like me? And I thought, what if I'm a terrible mother? My mother died when I was 23, so I couldn't ask her. But before she had died, long years before, she had said, Maggie, don't read any child-raising books or anything like that. You have good instincts. Just do what comes naturally. But I knew my mother was raised in what is now Pakistan, and she believed, uh, she said, oh, in India, they just ignore children until they're five. <laughs> Which I, d I think might have been true in the village where she was raised. <laughs> um, but I... I am an American, and I cannot, so was she, but not really. Uh, I can't ignore children until they're five. But anyway, I tried to do it perfectly, like I tried to do everything. And they did like me, as it turns out. I think they still like me, and I love them. And there's no way to know before you just do it. So it's an adventure. It's like jumping off a cliff. You just have to say, I'm going to do it. And it's not easy. 
Can I get an amen? And just because in the middle of the night you feel like giving up um, doesn't mean you're a bad parent. How do we love the unlovable? Oh my gosh, you guys. I do not believe you have to love everything. And I, I, um, I could be a bad person. But I think there are some things that are unlovable, some practices, behaviors I, I can't love. Maybe a better person could. I think you're talking about unlovable people, though. And I think you have to know them and know yourself and trust them to be who they are and not ever hope that they'll be different. I'm against hope in this case. And I think you have to sometimes love from a safe distance in that loving is, I wish the best for you and I will do whatever I can to make that happen, except I'm not going to let you hurt me. So um, I hate that book, The Giving Tree. Sorry if it's your favorite one. But I think that tree should have said, you may have this part of my branch, but not the whole thing because that'll kill me and that's not okay. It's not good for me and it's not good for you. So I think love has a, an element of being challenging in it. You challenge someone that you love and you say, this much and no more. And by the way, that's obnoxious and I'm going to disengage with you when your behavior gets this incorrect and um, if you can. If truth could hurt and be difficult, is it better to lie or be honest? So I think it depends on how big a truth it is. Um, I think if somebody says, does this make me look fat? You can just say, baby, you're always gorgeous, which is true, I'm sure. And just, you don't have to lie. If somebody says, isn't that baby adorable? Um, I personally think all babies are adorable, but some people think some babies look like Winston Churchill, and they just would say, that baby is doing baby really well. (laughs) When somebody says to me, don't you love bluegrass? I say, bluegrass has a very special place in my heart. So I think sometimes if you watch the politicians, you'll find out how not to answer a question. But if, if there's a big truth and the person needs to hear it, then you ask yourself, number one, do I love them enough to tell them this truth? Because if it's not somebody you love, then keep your mouth shut. Number two, am I willing for somebody to tell me as difficult and painful a truth? And if you're not, keep your mouth shut. Number three, have I done the best I can to clean up my side of the sidewalk? And if you haven't, keep your mouth shut. You sense a, a, a trend here. I think that if you love the person and you've done your own work and you're willing for them to tell you something equally as difficult, then, then you can tell them the truth that's painful. Does that make sense? And I could be wrong. Turned my back on a religion steeped in ritual, how do you overcome this aversion to ritual? Be comfortable in services here. That's important. Some people come from a religion steeped in ritual and they miss the ritual. They don't miss the theology, but they miss the ritual. 
And some people would be happy if they never had anything that approached a ritual ever again. Um, so people have very strong feelings both ways. And I would say, how do you become comfortable? I think you, you get off of the train track that says, I like this, I hate this. I like this, I hate this. And you jump off into the meadow beside the track where you say, I can live with this, and if I can't live with it, I'm going to go talk to somebody. And if they can't change it to where I can live with it, I'll talk to them again. And then I have a decision to make. So one lady left the church. I don't know her, but when the previous minister, Davidson, built these candle holders, which many of us love, she hated it so much because it reminded her of her Catholic church growing up and, and left. That is the story. I may be painting the story too simplistically. but um, I know there are people with strong feelings. And I feel for you. I have gone to a church where there were things that I couldn't abide. Uh, the creed, the recitation of the creed started really bothering me to the point where instead of saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, blah, 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 I would just stand there and say, and I was the minister's wife, <laughs> I would just stand there and say, they believe in God the Father Almighty. <laughs> 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 Which was true. What will be different two years from now? Um, if we're lucky, what will be different is that uh, we'll be meeting someplace else and everything will be torn up here while we, while we do our um, construction to be welcoming to more people. Um, how do you start... <laughs> oh, you guys. How do you start a conversation with your partner without hurting their feelings or making them feel attacked? Number one, a lot of people grow up in a family where you feel attacked if someone disagrees with you. Where you feel attacked if someone says, we need to talk. Where you feel attacked if you are described as anything less than perfect. And really, if your partner grew up in such a family or has that feeling of being attacked really easily, uh, that's not your responsibility. But, again, the same thing about the difficult truth. If you're willing to have that difficult conversation, I think you just have to say, we need to have a difficult conversation. Um, if your partner's an introvert, it's better to write to them about it. Otherwise, they will feel ambushed. If they're an extrovert, you can just grab them any old time and say, hey, I need to talk. How does UU philosophy address the issue of predetermination? Uh, UU philosophy is very uh, conversant with science. And I think you would say, if you start a particular process, sometimes it is predictable how that process is going to turn out. If that's predetermined, um, okay. You know the odds are good that if you do this, then that will happen. Um, if it means that God has decided how everything is going to turn out, uh, we say no. And actually, Christianity says no, too. The Presbyterians are big on that. Um, but all they mean by it is that if God has decided you're going to be saved, then you will, by God, be saved. The problem is the corollary of that is if God didn't decide you'll be saved, then you're not going to be saved. 
uh, which is why a lot of other people declared that belief anathema, which means really, really wrong. Anathema is Greek for you're going to hell. How do you know when you're doing enough, giving enough, helping enough, doing enough to honor your communities and environment? What is enough? Boy, that's a huge question. What is enough? Um, and some people never think they're doing enough, and other people aren't doing enough, but they think they're fine. And you worry about which one you are. I, I'm speaking for myself. I worry about which one I am. Because I think I should be doing everything all the time with passion, but I just can't. You just can't. You're a human type person. And so I, I like the um, Hebrew scriptures, 10%. Then if you're giving 10%, you're giving enough. And then you can just buy a yacht with the rest and have fun or whatever. If you're giving 10% of your time, you're doing enough. If you're giving 10%, man, you're doing great. And um, guilt should not be anywhere in your mind. Because you can always do more because it's never done. But you're on the front lines for so... I, I founded a battered women's shelter in South Carolina. And I served as their president, of the president of the board, for four years. And I burned out so hard that I couldn't even open mail from them anymore. This was back before email, so I would get envelopes in the mail and I would just go, oh, and throw it away. Because I just couldn't. And... Um, so I think you have to be on the front lines for a while, and then I think you have to retreat and let somebody else do it for a while. Because God or the universe, the arc of the universe, doesn't just need you. There are lots of us, and we do it together. And this is one reason to be in a church. So you get the feeling that there are other people who can do this if you just can't. I remember during the war in Bosnia, some of y'all weren't even born, and I was uh, praying and swimming laps. And I was crying in the pool because of what I was reading about Bosnia. And I was like, God, I can't believe you're not stopping this. And God said, I can't believe you're not stopping this. And I was like, what? And, uh, and God's like, do I have hands? No. So you have hands, yes. So you can stop it. I'm like, I have small children. I can't go. And God, or the inner wisdom voice, whatever, said, right. You have small children. You can't go. And I thought, well, what? Well, uh. and then my inner wisdom voice said, "You're not enjoying your life, and you're having a perfectly wonderful life, and you're not enjoying it because of somebody else's suffering that you can't do anything about." So there's a balance in the world between joy and suffering, and sometimes it's your turn to help end the suffering. And sometimes it's your turn to increase the joy. And if you're suffering over somebody else's suffering when you're having a perfectly good life and there's nothing you can do about that particular suffering, you're falling down on your job. Thank you all so much for your questions. These will be fodder for much thought, for newsletter columns, and for sermons in the future. So I very much appreciate having this glimpse into what you're thinking and what you're wondering about. And I'm honored that you would trust me with these questions. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, 
or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. One of the places that is in my heart and in the hearts of many of us this morning is Selma, as our Chris Jimerson and some of our members are there to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge to commemorate 50 years after Bloody Sunday. So let's sing together one of the freedom songs in solidarity and to honor all of the people who are there remembering Selma 50 years ago and hoping for a better tomorrow. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round, turn me round, turn me round. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me round. I'm gonna keep on walking, keep on talking, marching to the freedom land. May it be so. Go in peace.